HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Monday, November 28th, 2022. And this is our 341st episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a true restaurant industry leader, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to know when to fold them. Yes, this comes from the lyrics of The Gambler by the late music legend, Kenny Rogers. And the song goes, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Yes, this largely refers to playing cards. However, these words can apply to a broader context. Knowing when to hold on to something and when to let go and move on and accept a situation is key to navigating through life. Exit strategies are essentially as important as starting up, if not more so. So let's remember to play our hand as we see best, just like a winning poker shark. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm very excited to have my guest joining me since he debuted on our episode 34 back in September 2014. It is Ben Leventhal. He's the founder and CEO of Blackbird Labs, a next generation loyalty, membership, and payments company focused on enhancing direct connectivity between restaurants and their guests. Blackbird will be among the first Web3 platforms purpose-built for the hospitality industry. Ben is also the co-founder of Eater and Resi, two companies that have transformed the restaurant industry and have fundamentally changed the relationship between restaurants and guests. Without further ado, hi, Ben. Welcome back to the show. I can't believe it's been 300 episodes since I was last on. (laughs) I can't either because it's funny when I was putting this together and it's like 34 and I'm adding a one to it, 341 for this show. Yeah, I can't believe I've done this many shows either. (laughs) (laughs) What a run. Congratulations to you. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's pretty crazy. I just keep going. But I just listened back this weekend. I said, let me refresh my memory of what we talked about because it was 2014. It was when you had first really, it was a few months into Resi. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was, I have to say it was a pretty good listen. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, it's, it's a lot has changed. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a while. So I'm so excited to have you back and talk about what you're doing now. 
But for people who haven't listened to that show, even though I suggest you go back and listen, it's in our archives. Do you want to, I don't want to really repeat, like go back in your whole history. We did talk about how you, you, what led you into starting Eater, but give us a little brief background into kind of what led you into the hospitality space. You know, I have always been obsessed with restaurants and restaurants have as far back as I can remember sort of been uh, a happy place for me. And I'm just very lucky to have figured out how to have a career uh, in the restaurant industry. Um, I think, you know, when we first got to starting Eater, that was, that started as a hobby, uh, just sort of reflective of our obsession with the restaurant industry, uh, particularly in New York. And, um, you know, over a period of time, we went from being, you know, outsiders to, to insiders and the kinds of things that we were talking about shifted a little bit, but, um, it's always been about my enthusiasm and obsession with restaurants and, um, you know, how, how deeply I respect, uh, restaurant operators and, and their challenges and, and how they continue to deliver these amazing, uh, restaurants over and over and over again. I'm just, I just feel lucky to kind of be along for the ride. The, uh, the operators are doing the, doing the heavy lifting and I get to just, you know, kind of ride along with them. Well, you've certainly been riding along with them very well or kind of leading, I would say, the pack. Um, <laughs> would, would you, were there any particular, I don't know if you could say highlights or moments of something specific with your time at Resi? I mean, things, I mean, uh, that's that's one question. Another one is just, did the companies, would you say, Eater and Resi to where they are now, like, from when you started, did they get meet your expectations or, or beyond? Um, you know, the, the, I, look, I, I, I'm incredibly proud of, of where both these companies are today. The fact that they um, have, have been going and are thriving and thriving way past um, my involvement is just makes me very proud to see, to see um those that kind of longevity to to none of these things that I, that I played a part in creating. So, um, you know, just very proud. And so, in that way, I think they've exceeded all expectations. Um, you know, highlights for me are always around key milestones, and um, I think in many ways, you know, it's all about Resi was all about getting restaurants to take a leap of faith and to believe that there was. There was a world, um, you know, uh, there was a world beyond the legacy systems that they had been using for, you know, for decade plus, almost two decades by the time Resi came along. And so, you know, I, I remember just certain restaurants saying yes to us. And that was a thrill, you know, certainly some of the early restaurants that, that, um, that took the risk and then, you know, getting, getting restaurants that I just respect to come along as time went on. Those were, those were the moments that I would say are the highlights. Yeah. Well, I could see that. So what, what's your current role now with Resi since you were acquired by Amex? I think it was 2019. Are you still, are you still on board as a, as a strategic advisor? I'm an advisor. Mostly I'm a cheerleader. Um, at this point, I think they've got an incredible team running that business now and, um, and, it, and they don't need me over there anymore, but I, um, I'm, I advise when asked and I cheerlead aggressively. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So this show, I, we should focus on what you're doing now. And that is, you've decided to start a new, a new company in the industry called Blackbird Labs. So, Tell, tell us a little about the inspiration behind, behind this new company. Yeah. So Blackbird really in many ways is based on some things that I've observed over the last several years. Um, a lot of, of the genesis of Blackbird Labs really, um, you know, is rooted in, in COVID and the experience of restaurants 
in COVID. And I would say the things that we learned about restaurants in COVID, um, you know, some key observations. One is just that restaurants really have um, a place in, in consumers' uh, minds and hearts, I think, beyond what we necessarily understood pre-COVID. And in particular, I mean that there's just consumers love their favorite restaurants deeply. And, um, you know, in, in when restaurants closed and yet they were selling all kinds of crazy things to consumers like, um, you know, like mer- like merch and meal kits and sauces and um, and all kinds of things, you know, gift cards that were never that nobody ever intended to redeem. I think it showed just how enthusiastic restaurant consumers were. And it's, and I think that more specifically to me, what I, what I took from that is that there was a lot of enthusiasm and appetite to spend money in restaurants that was not really being channeled effectively and in an orderly fashion. And so I, really was thinking about how do we give restaurants tools that, you know, allow them to scale this enthusiasm, to scale the loyalty that their consumers have and the appetite that their consumers have uh, to spend money at their restaurants. And how do we give them some tools to scale that? I think that was one big observation. And I think the other is, is just my, my view that um, in order to solve the sort of, existential threats that restaurants face, meaning rising costs and consumers that are increasingly being, you know, stolen away by third party companies like Uber Eats and DoorDash. Um, In order to solve those problems, we need to focus on loyalty and focus on the connectivity between consumers and restaurants. And we need to focus on, um, on the cost structure of restaurants and, and how those two things play together. And so hopefully with Blackbird, we will we will be building software that allows restaurants to focus on increasing the lifetime value of their best customers um, and at the same time lowering some of the operating costs associated with getting and retaining those customers. So what so that you say you're building software. So this Web3 platform, I mean, I Googled Web3. I got some techie, you know, sort of definition out there. Actually, it did say something about how Siri, that's what I related to the most. Siri works on a <laughs> Web3 platform, <laughs> apparently. Siri does. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, that from my Google search, that came up as an example. So I was like, okay. But from your own words, what what is what does it mean to have a Web three platform? Well, Web three is just technology. I mean, cloud computing is is another is another similar sort of quote unquote technology. Web three is cutting edge technology. Um, it is going to we think allow us to do some things around uh, consumer identity and transactions that are innovative and cutting edge. But at the end of the day, it's software. It's not going to be, not much of it is going to be consumer facing. Um, You know, I think you will understand that it's a Web3 platform in the way that you might understand that Dropbox is a cloud computing platform, right? So I think in the end for consumers, the question is, what is it going to do for you? Um, And that has nothing to do with web three, web six, web 10, you know, web two. Um, But we're a technology company and we're building um, from scratch, you know, starting in 2022. And, and when we look at the tools that we have at our disposal, you know, we think there's some interesting stuff that is being developed um, in web three and, um, and, uh, and, and using, um, quote unquote crypto that will ultimately be to the benefit of restaurants and and consumers. But um, it's not that I'm giving you a cagey answer. It's that I think I sort of believe in the fundamentals of, of, of product and software and that I believe no matter what they should, the product needs to be easy and magical and intuitive and, um, and high utility. Uh, And in those ways it won't, you know, end users of the platform really, 
um, won't and shouldn't care whether it's Web 2 or anything else, Web 2, Web 3, anything anything else like that. Okay. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a couple questions from my, my guests on past shows, and one sure. of, I'm going to ask one of them now. Um, from my last show in episode 340, I had on Ronnie Mazumdar and Chef Chintan Padya, the co-owners of Unapologetic Foods, which is an award-winning restaurant group that is out to redefine Indian food. I'm sure you're familiar with their restaurants. like are well on their way. Yeah. Um, amazing. So a couple questions. So Ronnie wants to know, how are you going to disrupt the market with Blackbird Labs? You're kind of talking about that already. Um, and he noted... Uh, that you have a really terrific path that you've taken creating conversations in areas that weren't necessarily there before, like Eater, Breaking New Ground, and Resi that brought on a whole new conversation. So, look, I think the thing we're going to focus on, and we're going to do so aggressively, is this idea of connection between consumers and restaurants. And what does that really mean? Because I do believe that if you look at the history of technology in restaurants, it is largely a history of middlemen inserting themselves into that relationship. And, you know, we often said and continue to say um, at Resi, you know, open table is just buying your customers and selling them back to you for a dollar a pop. This is, this is how all of the big hospitality tech companies are working. This is how third-party delivery companies are working. This is, you know, this is a problem for restaurants. Having consumers, you know, having larger technology companies with much deeper pockets and and more sophisticated resources when it comes to consumer acquisition, customer acquisition, having to go head to head with those kinds of companies to maintain relationships with your customers doesn't make any sense. And it is creating humongous problems for restaurants. And so I, I think we're going to really focus on that. And we want to have that conversation. We want to have a conversation about um, what restaurants should expect from their, from what, what, what should restaurants, uh, you know, set as a high bar for the relationship they have with consumers? How does it, how do they make it direct and how do they make it ongoing and long-term? Um, and how do we make sure as a technology company, we're not getting in the way. And in fact, we are making it as easy as possible for that to happen because I don't think very many technology companies out there are making it easy, um, for those connections to exist and to persist. And I really strongly believe that that's where the future of restaurants, where the future, you know, future restaurants thrive, the ones that will figure that out. That's where the solution lies. Yeah. Well, it all makes it makes sense to me where, where you're going with this. And I, I noted on one of these shows, I definitely said something like if I was gonna bet I was gonna bet on someone, I would bet on you and your company because well, thank you're you. super you you have a gr- amazing track record and you 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 think out of the box and you really have have shaken up the industry in such a beautiful way between Eater and Resi. Um and we talked to him on my last show about an industry news. Um, I picked out the article that was um, it was in the New York Times, and it was "What does your favorite reservation app say about you?" <laughs> yeah. So we had a long conversation about that, and I have to say that that um, Ronnie and Chintan are all their restaurants are on Resi, and Ronnie gave a lot of um, great reasons why. And um, I use Resi now all the time, so. Um, he uh, second part of his question was: Is your Blackbird Labs going to be integrated with Resi? Um, you know, that's not for me to decide. We we would love <laughs> for it to be integrated with Resi. Um, we of course um, are going to have a conversation with Resi and Amex about that. We are going to build the software that we think makes the most sense, that we think is most accretive for restaurants. And hopefully we'll, you know, we'll integrate partners like Resi and, and others. Uh, I certainly think it will be to the benefit of restaurants for the software they use, the various pieces of the technology stack to be integrated. You know, I've always said restaurants should have the ability to tech to customize their, their technology stack and have it be as integrated as possible. So 
we hope it'll be integrated with Resi and lots of other stuff. Okay, so we will stay tuned for that. And then Chintan wanted to know, what's your thought process? How do you think through an idea? I don't, you know, uh, how do I think through an idea? It's a good question. Um, I'm an, I'm a very iterative thinker. I, um, I've sort of attached to, to some observation or some kernel of what I think will become an idea and sort of let it, let it evolve. Um, I like to talk to smart people early in the ideation process. I find that, um, just talking about my ideas helps formulate them and helps develop them. Um, and then I, um, like I said, I put as many smart people as I can around the table and we talk some more. Um, but it's very iterative, uh, is my answer. And, and, uh, and, uh, I, I'm, I guess I, I approach ideas with, with a hope and a willingness to change them over time to evolve them. Um, you know, and, and have, and, and assume they're going to develop. Yeah. So, so Blackbird Labs was largely an idea of yours that developed from the pandemic, or it was something that maybe you were tinkering with before, but things that you noticed during the pandemic kind of, uh, made it more into what it became as you launched. Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect example of how I, how I would say, um, you know, I'm, I like to, to iterate because, Look, I've always been obsessed. Well, I, I said I already said I've, I've been obsessed with restaurants, but but really, the thing that I think is remarkable is how outsized restaurant brands are as compared to the size of their business. And I think even you know that's that's this many maybe the more succinct way to to describe the observation. You know, these restaurant restaurant brands um, are incredibly powerful and. You know, they're, they're, they're generating the same kind of loyalty and enthusiasm that big national brands spend millions, if not billions of dollars to generate. Um, and so that's, that's the thing that I've been thinking about long before the pandemic. I think what the pandemic added to it uh, was just um, maybe some urgency, maybe some more specific kind of observations about connect about the direct connectivity. And then the way it's evolved is frankly, I've just talked to starting as far back as, you know, um, uh, probably, probably even before the pandemic, just talking to smart people about my observations and seeing what they thought and seeing, you know, how, how uh, their thoughts and their observations uh, might inform the ones that I was having. I, you know, in the last in the last twelve months or so, certainly those conversations have become more specific and um, sort of purposeful. And and you know, um, the people around the table at Blackbird, um, you know, Fred Wilson and Mo Koifman, who are our co lead investors, were very helpful as as this became it went from an idea to a business. Um, and really it was, it was, like I said, it was a very iterative process starting with questions about how do we, what do we think about the restaurant industry today? How do we harness this, this, uh, brand strength that we see? How do we use some of this new technology, um, these new technology, um, things that we see developing, can those be useful to restaurants? Uh, and how do we put all these things together? Amazing. So what, where are you at now with the company? You're building, you're building software, you're, you're raising money, you're, how many people are on, are on your, on your team at this point? So we'll be somewhere around 10 people by the end of the year. Okay. We are um, building and designing software. We like to have our initial product launch sometime by the middle of next year. And we're focusing on loyalty and memberships. Um, and, uh, you know, I think 
we're not ready to talk more specifically about what that means just yet. But I think what we are aiming for is to deliver software that is very lightweight and very easy to implement and yet is instrumental in, in um, forming stronger bonds between consumers and restaurants. Okay. Very, very cool. I found um, that you had a sub stack too, that you're, I was reading through your, your take on Thanksgiving dining out and uh, being a part of the conversation, which you have always been. So Don't read our sub stack. Yeah. It's the, yeah. we're, it's a great place to uh, sort of see how we're thinking about things. We're, and also a place where we're kind of ideating out, out in full view. Um, hopefully we're putting out some useful stuff there or some thought provoking content. Yeah, I know. I, I think it, I I would say so from what I saw, I didn't read all the pieces, but I scrolled through and I, I was, I was glad I discovered it. I think it's a great way to, to stay. Yeah. In the, or be the conversation, stay in the conversation. Um, question I have the name Blackbird Labs, where is there a meaning behind why you named the company that? Um, we'd like to attach meaning to it over time, to be honest with you. We like the word. Um, we think it sort of has presence and is memorable and yet actually isn't a word that has a, has a ton of uh, sort of existing existing meaning yet. And so we'd like to um, we'd like to attach that over time. But for what it's worth, you know, it's both a great Beatles song and it's uh, also the name of a legendary um uh, fighter jet. So some, some good blackbird name things have come before us. Yes. And wait, I'm thinking in Chicago had a restaurant named blackbird. It's true. That's true. <laughs> great restaurant. Oh, one of the greats. Yes. One of the greats. <laughs> yes. So, okay. So there's lots of tie-ins there. Um, okay. I had another question from my guest on episode 337 because we did a little rescheduling so my guest was Amy Emberling. She's the founding, a founding baker and current partner at Zingerman's Bakehouse in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go Blue. That's my school. <laughs> Huge victory over Ohio State this weekend. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. It was very exciting. We've, we've, we've haven't always come, had a lot of victories since I graduated. So, um, very, very nice to see that this weekend. So Amy, um, who is in Ann Arbor, wants to know, when do you decide to leave a business? Do you have any sort of metrics or milestones at the beginning of when you start a company that indicate when it's time to hand it over to someone else and move on to your next project? And she noted a lot of people always want to know about the start of a business, but she's asking about, you know, the opposite um, about, you know, when do you decide to leave? I think the key, the key moment is the key decision-making uh, criteria is if you think that it's better served without you, um, or you think that you've kind of taken it to a place where it's going to be in good shape sort of for the long term without you uh, or you have grown tired of it or you're fatigued by it or you sort of um, want to leave. You know, I think there's lots of good reasons to leave a business. Um, I, I would say this, I think a couple, I think don't leave unless you're willing to leave it is one thing that I've learned over time. Um, you know, when I left Eater and then when we sold Eater, there was a there was a year, maybe more, maybe it was less. I don't know. It felt like a long time where I read every day and it drove me crazy because I would have done things differently or um, I would have changed the headline or I didn't understand why Eater was covering uh, a chef the way it was. And... In the end, you know, you just have to walk away. I mean, Eater has done incredible things and is a humongous company as compared to what it was when we handed it off. And 
obviously it's done fine. And with Resi, I think that the calculus was a little bit different because we handed it off at a moment where we felt like the added scale of American Express would take it to uh, its next level. And it was the scale that we felt that it really needed to continue to grow and to continue to um, deliver on its mission. And so I think it really depends on the business, but it, you know, you have to check a couple of boxes. One, are you, are you ready to leave? Are you comfortable handing it off? Do you feel like you've built it to as much value as you wanted to build it to? And is that exit part of a bright future for the company? And I think if you can check those boxes, then it might be time to leave. No, yeah, no. Well said. I mean, it's I'm it's a you're it's amazing your career path and that you are. I don't know how many people I know who are. I don't want to like. I'm going to just say it like a startup guy, like you start up companies, like you think of ideas and you just run with it and you create brands and companies and it's, and then you move on. It's very, it's very impressive. I think it's got to be, I think it's hard on both ends to start up and then to, to know when to leave. Um, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing that, that you, you are doing that and mastering that. <laughs> um, or, and, and you, as you explained, you had different, you know, timing and reasons for leaving. Um, and, and it makes sense to, yeah, you got to be willing to, to let go and move on. Um, one more question before we take a break. So for anyone listening who is an aspiring entrepreneur or, or wants to be a startup guy or gal, um, what, what advice would you give? I think the key thing is be, be brutally honest with yourself about your superpowers. And if what you're trying to do doesn't include you being able to leverage those superpowers or what you're trying to do requires superpowers that you don't possess or have ready access to, then it might not be the right idea. Um, I, I think my success when I've had it, and by the way, there you know lots of things I've tried that haven't worked. I think my success has really been around me being able to leverage my own superpowers, and um, and 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 by doing so, sort of creating it a substantial competitive advantage for the businesses that I've built. But that's the key thing. The rest of it is relatively speaking easy. But if you don't have a superpower that you can point to the thing you're trying to build, it's going to be incredibly hard. That's a great note to end on superpowers. I love it. <laughs> okay. So let's take a little break and we will come back. We'll play my speed round, talk some industry news. I have my solar dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. You've heard me talk about Diageo Bar Academy on this podcast, now for some time. Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. Whether you are an experienced bartender looking for new inspirations and trends, or you're just starting out, Diageo Bar Academy's online courses offer real life skills to help you grow in your career. They are always free, interactive, and some of the advanced e-learning courses take less than 30 minutes to complete. And many of the quizzes and activities will generate a certificate upon completion. E-learning courses cover everything from skills and techniques to serving responsibly and creating your own personal brand. Visit DiageoBarAcademy.com to build your skills with Diageo Bar Academy e-learning and master classes. Made for newbies and bar professionals at every level, it's time to focus on taking your career to the next level. Become a member today for instant access to its global bar community. That's diageobaracademy.com. D 
D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Must be 21 or over and please drink responsibly. Thank you. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Ben Leventhal. He's the founder and CEO of Blackbird Labs, a new loyalty membership and payments technology company. So, Ben, it's time for my speed round game. You have played this once before. Are you ready to play it again? (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Believe it or not, 300 plus episodes in, (laughs) the game is pretty much the same game. So... (laughs) We'll see. We'll see how you how you answer this 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 time around. All okay, right. so I'm, I'm gonna name a couple things, and you got to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay, here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant. I would say this one. I've changed my answer. I'm I we eat in at home a lot more than I used to, and I do deeply enjoy it. Um, so if there's a way to be 50-50 on this, I'm 50-50. But I, I would say I'm eating home more than I ever have. Okay. I, I Listening back, at you, you, I remember I was surprised you had hesitated on the eat out. You did answer eat out, but you noted that you thought it was changing to eat in. So. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're right. You're right on point there. Okay. I added in this one, um, this is more pandemic related, but I have indoor dining or alfresco dining. Indoor dining. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? I'm still primarily a cocktail guy, I think. I think that was my answer. I would get, but but I'm also drinking a lot more wine than I used to. Okay. Actually, I don't remember what you said on that one. I think maybe you did say cocktail. Okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Large plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I like tipping. I think all of those were the same. Okay. <laughs> this one, this one is a new, new uh, version of the same one where I've, I've narrowed it down to Wells or Sutton because the for, last time it was <laughs> Wells, Sutton, Platt, or Cuzo, but two are oh out now. <laughs> I'm a so, Wells guy like Wells. Wells is okay. great. Okay. Okay. Very good. Iced or hot coffee? Iced. It's ice season now. Okay. Um, And last two, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn? (laughs) Manhattan, now and forever. I think pretty much you answered all of them the same, except maybe the first one, but (laughs) very cool. (laughs) I'm a future pilot. Yeah, well, and you know what you like, so that's good. Okay, so for industry news, I just picked out an article that was in the New York Times, and it's entitled, What is a Wine Bar Anyway? The term is nebulous and too often all-encompassing. The best places for a quick snack and a glass or two for whiling away the evening. And this is by Eric Asimov, and he was a guest on this show, episode 164, if anyone wants to listen to that. So... I mean, this isn't breaking news or anything. I just thought it was—I thought it was a good piece and an interesting subject because I haven't really talked much about wine bars at all on this show, and um, it, it's interesting to think about. Like, what is a wine bar? I mean, he's—he's he's noting in it. Well, first, he's noting that wine bars are booming, but he's also noted like, is it a restaurant with su- superb food by accomplished chefs, or is it more of a place you just drop in a humble place for? Uh, on a whim for a drink and a bite. Um, like what is, what is a wine bar? So I don't know. I figured you probably have a, have you thought about wine bars? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fun topic. Um, I, I look at, I mean, I think wine bars are the great ones are awesome. And I love a good wine bar. And um, I think he mentioned Parcel which is, I guess, the sort of one of the newer, the newer uh, hot, yes. hotspot wine bars right now down Dime Square. 
which is great and awesome. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan. Um, you know, he said something, I think in the article, he, he noted they were more for sort of a younger crowd, which I thought was an interesting take because I've never thought of them necessarily for a younger crowd. Um, but, uh, maybe so. Um, yeah. He did say know. something like that. He said he noted how back back in the day when wine bars, I guess, first came around. I think he was talking about the nineteen seventies and eighties. How they were more places of of educating people on wine, and maybe that's people aren't looking for that as much now. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was thinking wine bars. I think maybe in this this might tie into the younger crowd, but I think wine bars are great for dating. Like, you know, a place you go to have a drink that maybe you're going to also have a bite, but maybe not necessarily a whole dinner. Um, I totally agree. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that he felt that there was so much ambiguity as to what is a wine bar and what's a restaurant. To me, the lines are pretty clear. You know, a wine bar is about the wine, a restaurant's about food. You sort of you do have to pick one in the end and I think you'd be hard pressed to find a restaurant or a wine bar that hasn't sort of picked one of the two as the more important. Well, yeah, he noted, I think he, he, he noted he had in the piece, uh, the owner from Claude, which just got three stars in the New York times and that they decided to, to market themselves as a restaurant, not a wine bar, even though they have a serious wine program. Well, a lot of restaurants have serious wine programs, but I guess for for me, like he also had an article linked to um, a piece he wrote on New York's best wine bars. Now he had noted eleven places, and when I was looking through the list, to me they're mostly wine bars. But on there he has Wild Air, which mm-hmm. in my mind is a I define Wild Air as a restaurant. Like I go there, like I know. I guess it could go either way, but I think it is interesting because in in my head, I w- I think that more is a full service restaurant than as a wine bar. I totally but. agree. I think it's only a wine bar in in so much as you could you would include it in this kind of roundup as a place to drink wine. I mean, you sit it mostly. I think all the tables at while well, they're communal. I think maybe that's the the sort yeah. of yeah makes it casual enough in that way. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I do like <laughs> a good wine bar. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting read to think about. And, and I guess it, in a sense, it, maybe it doesn't even matter if we're going to go to a place and have good food and drink, but um, he definitely, he, there's, there's words out there about this. So um Good, good, good to think about, and we are definitely, I always say, so spoiled in New York City by the amount of restaurants and wine bars we have to choose from. We have a lot of That's amazing sure. places. So, okay. Oh so. well, he does say Wild Air too might be more of a restaurant. Yeah, he acknowledges oh, kind of a restaurant. Okay, I'm just, I'm just looking at it as we as we talk. Um, I yeah. just saw he, I saw it on the list. Not yeah. okay then. Then, then Eric is on the same page as us. <laughs> <laughs> we can stand down. All right. Yes, we'll sleep well tonight. Okay, so that's that. For my solo dining experience this week, I was just down in Miami with my family for Thanksgiving. So this week I went to a place called Contessa. So here's the rundown. The location 111 Northeast 41st Street in the Design District, Miami, Florida. The concept, focusing on Northern Italian cuisine, it's meant to transport guests to Lake Cuomo circa 1960. The owners, this is Major Food Group, the team that's behind Carbone, Sedel, Zizi's, and Dirty French. The owners are Jeff Zelaznik and chefs Mario Carbone and Rich Teresi. So why'd I go? Well, um, this was a newer place, and I always like checking out what the major food group is up to. They just keep opening new spots, um, and I, I usually enjoy all of their spots. So um, I wanted to go. So my experience, I had a reservation for one this last Tuesday. Um, I was nicely greeted. I was led upstairs. It's a two-floor restaurant. Um, I, I thought it was a little strange that 
my reservation was for one and they sat me at a four top table while there were two tops available. And I even asked them about it because it seemed like they, they were just giving this big table away to me, but they said, no, this were what they had on the book. So, um, so I sat at a four top, um, I had a lot of space and my server was great went through specials and recommendations for me. Um, I ordered, the food came out pretty quickly and I had a good time. So what did I get? So I got the squash carpaccio, which had arugula, pumpkin seeds, and agrodolci, which is a Italian sweet and sour sauce. And then I got the spicy lobster capellini. My take, I absolutely loved the carpaccio. Um, my server had recommended it, and it was just fantastic. Um, I ate basically the whole thing. I mean, it looked, it was a large, it looked like it was a large plate, with, and it looked bigger than I think it really was because its carpaccio was very thinly sliced squash, and it had this wonderful sauce and the arugula in the middle, and it was really delicious. And then my pasta, the capellini, was wonderful too. I mean, it had a vodka sauce, which I knew from the Carbone guys, um, their, I think rigatoni with vodka sauce is always a, a big hit. So I enjoyed that. It had little pieces of lobster in it. I think I probably, I, could, I mean, it had an ample amount of lobster. I was kind of expecting larger chunks of the lobster, but it was great. I, I had some leftovers of that, um, but I really enjoyed it. The ambiance. So it's a swanky, two-story, glamorous type place. Uh, I think I found these notes on Eater. It said it was, uh, uh, for descriptions, emerald striped drapes, uh, jewel-toned art de decor marble floor, pink Venetian plaster walls, Italian Murano light fixtures, and custom furniture. It has a grand staircase. It has antique mirrors, and there are bars on both levels. And downstairs, there's uh, outdoor dining. I'd say it's perfect for date night. Interesting tidbit, major food group has been consistently expanding in Miami, um, having originally debuted in New York City. They now have Carbone Miami. They have ZZ's Club, which is a private members-only restaurant. Uh, they have Sidell's in Coconut Grove, which I went to my last time down there, and I had a great lunch there. really liked it. And they have Dirty French Steakhouse in Brickell, which I have not been to yet. Personal fun fact, um, Contessa opened in 2021, another location on the rooftop of the Newberry Hotel in Boston um, next to the Public Garden. And I was in Boston in September and I actually did a walk through the restaurant. I was like between meals, but I was nearby and I wanted to see it. And it's also, it was, it was daytime, but I could, it's a, it's a very beautiful space. It's harder. I mean, it's still swanky and cool and, and had a great vibe. The cost of my meal was $61, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website's majorfood.com, Instagram, major at Major Food Group. So there you go. Have you heard of this place, Ben, Contessa? I mean, the Major Food Group just can't stop. Can't stop. <laughs> won't stop. They, way to put it. They open a restaurant every day. And they're all good. It's, it's in so impressive what they're doing. Can't, it's amazing. It really is. I don't. They they have they have such a following, and as you, they just keep going. And yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I don't know how they're doing it, but um, they open new places, and I go. <laughs> <laughs> and lots Easy of other people me. do too. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, so yeah, it was busy that night. Um, I've, so uh, I was there a little on the early side, but as I left, it was like almost every table was full. So, well, congratulations to them. I I think I'll have to maybe check out a dirty French steakhouse next time I'm down there. I'm curious to see how the what ver how the the difference between the dirty French they have in New York City. So, okay. Um, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Marcus Glocker. He is the chef and partner at Coleman, which is a contemporary French restaurant blending Parisian creativity and Viennese tradition in New York City's nomad neighborhood. Um, he's took over the space that was formerly the Breslin at the Ace Hotel. And um, Marcus is awesome. I can't wait to talk to him and hear everything he's doing at Coleman. Uh, so, Ben, can you ask a question for Marcus? Uh, my question to Marcus is, how does the clientele in Nomad differ from the clientele that he's 
had previously, I think he was in Tribeca before. Um, and I know he's cooked in other neighborhoods. So I'd be curious if there's anything different about the clientele and Nomad. And similarly, does he, does the neighborhood inform the way he designs the menu, the space, the style of service? Um, and if so, how did he use Nomad to inform uh, his new restaurant? Awesome. Great questions. I'll find out because yes, he was at he was at Batard in Tribeca, and he also was um, he was at Augustine uh, down yeah, yeah. at the Beekman for for I think it was before the pandemic. So cool. Um, that's the show, Ben. You did it. So much <laughs> uh, fun. Thanks for having th- me. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming back. I mean, happy to have you back again. We don't have to wait another eight years. <laughs> I'm still going. Um, it looked actually when I was looking at, and I, I don't know if this is coincidence, but or or if it is part of your exit strategy at all. But it looked like you had like about five years, kind of at of the main part of your eater and your resi residencies, if I could call it. Total coincidence. I, I, I never even thought about that, actually. Totally a coincidence. I'm observant on my LinkedIn <laughs> research. <laughs> so maybe we'll see in five years what you're up to, but I'm very excited to see what happens with this launch of Blackbird Labs. And um, I, yeah, and, and any way I can be of help with that, just let me know. I am I am here well, and you. also restaurants are my happy place. So on the same same page there. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope to see you out and about in the in, in dining out sooner than later as well. Look forward to it. So thank you, Ben. My guest today has been Ben Leventhal. He's the founder and CEO of Blackbird Labs a new loyalty membership and payments technology company. His website is blackbird.xyz, and you can follow him at Ben Leventhal and at blackbird underscore xyz. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Kevin Chang Barnum. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer, and I will be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.